We're going to go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy to us and um, ask that you'd be with us now as we look at your word. We pray that you would encourage us by it and help us um, to think well and to, to see um, the way that you have chosen to deal with us and to be encouraged by it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are starting a new class today. I need those slides right now. There we go. Thank you. And um, this is a class called I Will Be Your God, Exploring God's Covenants. And um, I'm going to start just by reading several passages to you from the New, the new Testament. All right? Luke 1. This is, um, we'll be actually be preaching on this in a couple of weeks because we're preaching through Luke 1. Luke 1, 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Do you know who says this? It's a Simeon. No, this is, is this Simeon? No, this is uh, Zacharias. Yeah. Uh, John the Baptist's father. Okay, talking about the birth of John the Baptist and looking forward to the birth of Jesus. Matthew 26. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. The blood of the covenant. Ephesians 2. Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who are far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have ac our access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. I'm not going to say much about these passages, but I want you to see there's, there are themes that's, that go all the way through this that keep coming up over and over again, okay? Hebrews 10, 
For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And lastly, Hebrews 13. Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. What's going on here? I just skimmed the surface of the New Testament, Right? And there's a theme that comes up over and over and over again. And it is a theme that points to the unity and the continuity of the whole Bible. These are, all this language comes from what we call the Old Testament, right? Covenant, the covenants of promise, the eternal covenant, the new covenant, the covenants of, of promise. All of this shows the unity and the continuity of the Bible. And one of the bands that ties the whole Bible together from Genesis to Revelation is the way that God has always dealt with mankind. Actually, how he, was always, how he has always dealt with his whole creation. And that is by covenant. And covenant uh, is not one, this is not a, uh, you know, this isn't a, theology geek kind of thing. That, you know, if you really want to dive deep, you can, you can decide maybe to open up this thing and go down into the cellar, you know, and really, you know, get deep. This is not deep. I mean, it is deep. It's deep and it's right on the surface. In other words, it is the, it is the warp and woof of the whole Bible. Woven together, it's on the surface, it's in the middle, and it's down deep. <laughs> it's everywhere. The way that God has chosen to deal with all of creation is through covenant. And so the Bible is God's book. It is his word. The Holy Spirit is the author. It's not some random collection of noble, the noble religious thoughts and aspirations of an increasingly sophisticated tribe from the ancient Near East. You know, that's what we're told today. This is evolutionary kind of progression of these ancient people who figured out how to write and not worship lots of gods and decided to worship one God and blah, blah, blah. No, the Bible is the word of the living God. And so there is a unity, there is a continuity, there's a consistency that runs all through all the parts of the Bible. No matter when each part was written, no matter which human author God used to write it. All right, there is a continuity woven into scripture because God wrote it. It's the word of God. The Bible is unified, okay? And it's unified around covenants. So what is a covenant? Well, covenant is one of those words that we read over and over again in the Bible. Um, 
but we probably have just kind of a vague, vague feeling kind of idea about what a covenant is. Oh yeah, covenant, it's all over the Bible and we hear it all the time and there is Abraham and maybe someone else. It's used a lot, I don't know. Covenant is not a word we use much in our everyday language, but God uses the words that we translate covenant, right, in English, somewhere around 300 times in the Bible. And there's a, there's a Hebrew word translated covenant and there's a Greek word that's translated covenant New Testament, Old Testament. Think about this. How do we use the word covenant in our common everyday talk? We actually do use it in a couple of ways. What are the contexts in which we use the word covenant? Ben? Yes. So how many of you um, <clears throat> live where you have, you're part of a homeowner's association? Anybody? A few. Joni's not here, of course she's in a place with homeowners associations. So if you live in a home or a condo or a neighborhood, right, that's part of a homeowners association, you are subject to the rules of the neighborhood, right? So what color you can paint the house, if you can have a fence or not, where the mailbox goes, what your driveway can be made out of, if you can have a dog or not, what kind of dog you can have. What are those called? What are those rules called? Covenants and restrictions. <laughs> Covenants, conditions, and restrictions, okay? Another name for those neighborhoods is covenanted communities. Isn't that funny? Covenanted communities. And so when you buy a home in a covenant, covenanted community, you enter into a commitment that does what? Well, it brings certain privileges you know, maybe the community has a swimming pool. You get to use a swimming pool or the, or the basketball or the, or the, gol or the uh, golf course or the you know, tennis courts or whatever. So it brings certain privileges, but it also brings penalties if you break the conditions of the covenant, right? So fines, you know, revocation of, of, uh, of privileges, lawsuits, right? Penalties. Now, why is that the case? It's because a covenant, even in the way that we use the term today, is a binding oath that brings with it privileges and penalties, right? When you bought that house or that condo, what did you do? Those of you who lived in, this in these communities, you signed the papers, yes? You had to sign the papers. And you signed the paper that said, yes, I read these covenants and I agree to abide by them. And if I don't, I fully understand that I open myself to the sanctions and penalties of breaking this covenant. That's what it means. So that's a place where we use the term covenant. Where else do we use covenant? Well, we'll get to that in a minute. Where do we use it in our common language, our common everyday practice? A marriage. Um, less commonly anymore, but we still, if we have any biblical understanding of marriage, we understand that marriage is a covenant. Not, it's not a contract that's easily breakable. It's a covenant. And we'd be right to assume this 
Malachi 2. Look at this. He says, this is another thing you do. This is the prophet speaking to the people. This is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and with groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. And yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by what? By covenant. Marriage is, in fact, a covenant. And in the church, we still have, to some degree or another, at least the memory that a marriage between one man and one woman entered into lawfully and honestly is a binding oath. A binding oath. We even say, what? When we, when we get married. We make solemn vows. And they guarantee their faithfulness. Right? To this, I guarantee my faithfulness. Or the old language is what? I plight my troth. Guarantee your faithfulness. We actually know what that means. If you're going to make an oath, you, might, you better know what you're saying. <laughs> okay. And what do we say? Till death parts us, binding oath to death, and we do it where? In the presence of God and witnesses. Okay, this is a covenant. So even, even though we don't use this word terribly often, right, in our modern everyday lives, we still have some idea of what a covenant is. We understand that a covenant is an oath that binds two parties to certain obligations and privileges, but also carries penalties. We might even say curses for the one who breaks the oath. We have some memory of this. Even if it's totally almost gone in marriage, and the only place that it really hits us is whether you can paint your fence blue or not. That is, that definition though of a covenant is very close to the reality of all the covenants that God makes. There's a binding oath. There are covenant obligations and commitments and privileges. There are promises of blessing for those who keep the covenants and there are promises of cursing for those who break the covenants. Those are all marks of a covenant that we can understand from the world of men because we have the same thing. And men always have. There have always been these kinds of commitments, binding oaths with penalties and blessings going all the way back to the beginning of the world. So we have these same kind of, of arrangements and agreements. But what's the one main difference between any covenant that we would make with one another on the one hand, and any covenant God would make with us on the other hand. What's the main difference? What do you think? There's one major difference. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So the difference between the parties, right? Um, in human covenants, there can be some element of bargaining, right? Negotiating. There's some level of mutuality that, allow, that always comes into play with merely human covenants, especially today. 
Uh, no one holds a gun to your head and makes you sign the HOA agreement. You, you, you had to, to want to live there. No one made you live there. You could have said, no, I can't paint my fence blue. I'm not going to live there. Go find another house, right? No one holds a gun to your head and makes you marry that man or woman. Typically. The only exception throughout history would be the kind of covenant that a sovereign ruler or a king or an emperor would impose on his subjects without any permission or say or bargaining from them. And that kind of thing has happened, right, in the world of men. But even still, the parties of that kind of covenant are still equals in one sense. They're, they're both, even if it's the emperor and a conquered nation, they're both men, they're both flesh, they're both made of dust, they both die and land in the grave. But think about the infinite gulf between God and man. Man is in no way equal to God. Man is in no position to bargain for better terms. No man is in any position to approach God and try to strike a deal with him. Not even Mike. No deal, no bargain, no negotiating, nothing. When it comes to God's covenants with men, we are always passive. God comes, God stoops down, God makes the terms and establishes the duties and the conditions and the blessings and the curses, not man. He imposes, right? God is sovereign. And here's another element of God's covenants that's different from your HOA agreement, I hope. When God makes a covenant, death is always on the line. Hopefully, you haven't joined that kind of HOA. <laughs> you know, no blood has been spilt or will be. When God makes a covenant, death is always on the line. God never enters into a casual or kind of this informal relationship with, with man, right? The implications of his covenant, of this binding oath, extend to the ultimate issues of life and death, always. And so we see this all through the Old, the Old Testament. We see it simply in the language that's used for, for covenants and how covenants are made. The Holy Spirit, when he talks about God making covenants, and even sometimes man making covenants with men, because you see that in the Old Testament too, men making covenants with men. But when God makes covenants with men, the term that's used over and over again in the inauguration of a covenant is literally to cut a covenant. We still have the same kind of language, don't we? That's carried over into, into even today, to cut a deal. You cut a deal with someone. Where does that come from? It comes from this, all right? Now, we're not cutting. Um, what's being cut? What does that mean? Well, we'll see. We also see that covenant making is deathly serious business and the actual rituals that surround it all through the Old Testament. And so we can see both the language of cutting a covenant and the bloody ritual 
that goes along with covenants in places like Genesis 15, when God cuts a covenant with Abram. Now, obviously, we're going to come back to Genesis 15 in a few weeks, but I want you to see this to give us kind of a paradigm for what covenants are like. This is Genesis 15, 9 to 18. This is God coming to Abram at this point. He hasn't changed his name to Abraham yet. And so he, God said, God said to him, Abram, bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other. Can you picture this? What would it look like to cut a cow into? I'm talking about a rabbit, <laughs> you know, a cow, and a ram, and a goat, and then a couple of birds. So he cut them in two, but he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. And God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. This is talking about Egypt. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterwards they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. <clears throat> you will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces of animal that had been cut in half. And that day the Lord made literally cut, okay? The Hebrew word here literally is not just made, but cut. And that day the Lord cut a covenant with Abram, saying to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. Now, obviously, we're gonna look at that passage in depth and the rest of God's dealing with Abram, Abraham. But the point here is that God came to Abram to make a covenant with him on whose terms? God's terms. This wasn't Abram's idea. God came to him. And this covenant was a solemn oath and bond. And the penalty for breaking it, even if God himself is the one who breaks it, is death. How is that symbolized in, in this event? Well, God kills things. God tells Abram to kill things, animals. Lays them out with an aisle between them, right? Lays them out with an aisle between them. And then what does God do? God walks between the parts. We'll talk about that. What is he saying? He's saying, if I don't keep my word, my binding oath, may, may this be done to me. That's what he's saying. We'll look at that. This is a binding oath. There's blood. Life and death are at stake. And God comes down and imposes this on Abram. Doesn't ask his permission. Doesn't enter into bargaining. 
And so the classic definition of a covenant is this. This is from this book. And if anyone wants to read a good book on this topic, there are a few things I would disagree with, but of course, so what? This is a good book. It's called The Christ of the Covenants by this guy, O. Palmer Robertson. And this is kind of, has become the classic definition of a covenant um, in modern theology, okay? And it's a good one, and so I'm gonna use it. A covenant is a bond in blood sovereignly administered. So it's sovereignly administered because God is the one who comes and imposes it, okay? No bargaining, no deal making. And it's a bond, it's a binding oath, and life and death are always at stake. All right, so we'll see how this plays out through the whole Bible as we go through this class. All right, any questions, any thoughts about this so far? Anybody? Yes. Sovereignly, what does it mean by sovereignly administered? It means, so what I'm saying about God, number one, man doesn't go to God to make a covenant with him. God always comes. And there's no bargaining. There's no like deal making. God comes and imposes the, co- the terms. Does that make sense? Yep. Yes, exactly. Unilateral. Thank you. So in, as opposed to bilateral, you know, Mike Bowles is always, <laughs> actually, <laughs> it's a good example of unilateral. No, not really. Um, you know, bargaining is, is bilateral, two sides. U- unilateral is one side. That's a, that's a good word. Any other questions or clarifications? Yeah. Yes. These, this applies to God's covenants. Okay? Covenants between men or men and women, right, um, are made between, some of them are made this way, if the emperor comes to town and says, you're my people now, the people don't start trying to, you know, strike a deal, right? But there are covenants that are mutual among men, mankind, men and, men and women. But these, this is specific to, to God's covenants, all right? So, what are the covenants in the Bible? Let me give you a little snapshot. And this, um, I'm going to put something up on the screen here and work through it that is not the best way to do this, but it's what I came up with to get them all on the screen all at once to show you some. There are a couple of things I want to show you, what they are and the fact that they're connected to one another and to some extent how they're connected, although it's kind of sloppy. Okay. So we can start by thinking about God's covenant with creation in general, where in the act of creation, God is the covenant Lord, right? Think of, I mean, creation is by definition unilateral, right? God didn't ask (laughs) if we wanted to be, you know, if light wanted to be created, 
If the earth wanted to be created, if the water, want, if you wanted to be created, God acts sovereignly in creation and he imposes rules. We'll look at this next week. Um, he is the, the king over all the earth. He sets everything in order according to his will. When he commands, the creation springs obediently into existence. Let there be light. Boom, there's light, right? There are commands. There's response. And we're gonna call this God, the covenant of creation. We'll look at that next week. This is one that isn't typically spoken of a whole lot in a lot of the, the books and stuff about the covenants, but I think it's very important. We'll see why next week. And then, it's clear as we study the Bible that God made a covenant with Adam in the Garden of Eden before Adam fell into sin. Him, Adam's falling into sin was his breaking of the covenant. We call this the covenant of works. And so, when Adam sinned, he was breaking the terms of a covenant. And I'll, I'll show that to you from Scripture in a couple of weeks. As a result, he forfeited the blessings of obedience and he earned the curses of disobedience. The wages of sin is death. Those are the terms of the covenant. And the day that you eat of that, you will die, right? Not just for himself, but also for all of his descendants and for all of his realm, all of creation, as the, the Lord, little l, over all of creation. Theologians usually call that covenant with Adam before the fall the covenant of works or the Adamic covenant or the Edenic covenant, so the covenant with Adam or the covenant in Eden. We'll, we'll, we'll work all that out in a couple of weeks. But you can see how the covenant of works is built on the covenant of creation, right? Then we'll see as soon as Adam breaks the terms of the covenant of works, God graciously promises to send a redeemer who will crush the head of the serpent. This is Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman. This is God talking to the serpent, right? I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. This is the beginning of what we call the covenant of grace where God begins to work out in time, the redemption, the salvation of mankind. But here's something. When we, when we see that God, in time, starts a plan in place, or starts a plan in motion that is already in place, okay? And we're gonna see this all through scripture, this is, these colors here represent everything, these three blocks here are in time. These two are before the fall, right? Covenant of creation, covenant of works, this, everything above it's gonna be after the fall. But this is outside of time entirely, the covenant of redemption. This is God, all three persons of the Trinity, before the creation of the world, before Adam's fall into sin, covenanted together to accomplish and apply the redemption of God's people. Before the foundation of the world. Before Adam sinned. We'll, we'll talk about all of that. It's really amazing.
And we call that, theologians call that, the covenant of redemption. So God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, putting, agreeing with one another to put a plan in place that will be worked out in time. But this is done before the foundation of the world. But it's spoken of in terms of covenant, and we'll see that. All right? As the effects of Adam's rebellion against the covenant of works continue to poison, Adam's offspring continue to work themselves out in, in all of mankind, we next see in Scripture God's covenant with Noah, where God destroys all flesh on the earth except Noah and his family, but after the flood, he promises never to do that thing, do that kind of thing again, and to keep the world running to the end of time in order to carry out his purposes on the earth. So God's covenant with Noah. And then we see that God chooses a particular man from which to bring blessing to all the nations of the earth, that's Abraham. And God enters into a covenant with Abraham that furthers God's gracious purposes to bring a people to himself. And then we see that God rescues the descendants of Abraham from slavery in the land of Egypt through Moses, and God enters into a covenant with the nation of Israel through Moses. We call this the Mosaic Covenant, but it's not made with Moses, it's made with Israel. All right, Moses is the mediator. We'll talk about all that. So he now is making a covenant with a particular nation. Then God makes a covenant with King David. We call this the Davidic Covenant, where God promises that David will have a son who will reign on his throne forever. All right? And then all of these covenants, God's covenant with creation, and Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses and David, all of them are driving towards Christ. The ultimate fulfillment of the covenant of grace in our Lord Jesus Christ, the new covenant where all of God's promises are yes and amen in Christ. That's why when, I, when we started today, I was reading from the New Testament. And it's always spoken of in terms of covenant. Christ's work, the blood of the covenant poured out for many. All right, we'll, we'll talk, we'll get to that. That is the unity of the scriptures that we will see, all right? This is all of a, of a fabric. These aren't like at odds with one another. This is God's plan. This is God's purpose. This is the way that God deals with us. What unifies the whole Bible is the fact that from before the creation of the world, God purposed to enter into relationship with a multitude of people that no man can count and to make them his people. This has, been all, has always, literally, always been the plan. As long as God has been God, which is forever, this has been the plan. All the, co the covenants are driving toward that goal. And the ultimate, the ultimate and eternal fulfillment of this one promise that actually carries through from beginning to end the one promise that binds all of these covenants together is this. I will be your God and you will be my people. That's all through all of these covenants. From Genesis to Revelation, 
I will be your God. You will be my people. That's the, the underlying promise of all the covenants. Now think about this, all right? Your life, your life, this is why this isn't just like theology nerd stuff, okay? Your life, your past history, your present joys, your present struggles, your sins, your duties, your future hopes, your purpose. All of that makes sense when you, when you learn to see yourself as you stand in this one great purpose of God. This is, this is your life. And we'll see that as we go through this. Now, I have one last thing, one, one more thing I have to do. And we actually have time to do it. Wow. Um, there is another major theological system that came on the scene in the mid-1800s that presents itself as an alternative framework for the whole Bible, right? This gives you a framework for the whole Bible and shows you how the whole Bible is unified together. There are consistent purpose of God unfolding gradually but driving to a point, right? Well, there's another alternate system structure um, that is pretty new on the scene if you think about the history of God's people and that system is called dispensationalism. So if covenant theology, which is what I'll be teaching to you, integrates the Bible, integrates it, shows you how it's unified, dispensationalism by definition disintegrates the Bible. It breaks it up into bits that are not organically related to one another at all, all right? Dispensationalism teaches that God has dealt with mankind differently through seven periods of time or dispensations, right? That's what that term means, periods of time. Different ways of God dealing with creation through different periods of time. And here's what they are. The age of innocence, which is Adam under probation prior to the fall, ends with him being ex expelled from the Garden of Eden. Conscience, age of conscience, which is the period of time between the fall to the flood. Human government, which is after the great flood, where humanity is responsible to enact the death penalty, all right, ends with the dispersion of mankind at the Tower of Babel. The age of promise from Abraham to Moses, ends with Israel's refusal to enter the land of Canaan and wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Law, which is uh, after the people of Israel go into the promised land, lasting to the time of the crucifixion of Christ. And then grace, which is where they would say we're living today, the, the age of grace or the church age, which is from the cross, the time of Christ's death and resurrection, to what they would call the rapture of the church. And the, the rapture is followed by the wrath of God um, coming at the time of this great tribulation and all of that, that's the church age. And then lastly, the millennial kingdom, which is a thousand year reign of Christ on earth, centered in Jerusalem before the final judgment, 
And that ends with God's judgment on, on the final rebellion on the last day. You all got that? This, now, obviously, there, you could say, well, look, there's some similarity here. There are things that are happening here that you could kind of line up with that. Right? But this is a unity. This is not. These are, everything is different in every age. Here, God is building on each previous covenant isn't canceling everything from the past, but building on it and moving forward. In dispensationalism, God deals differently with mankind according to the age or the dispensation in which you're living. This is a disintegration, not an integration, all right? But the disintegration is even more fundamental than that in dispensationalism. In dispensationalism, there's a radical distinction and radical discontinuity between the physical nation of Israel, who are called God's uh, earthly people, and the church, which is God, they call God's heavenly people. So there's a radical distinction between them, a radical discontinuity between them, which also means that there's a radical distinction between what we call the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament is for Israel, and the New Testament is for the church. The Old Testament is for God's earthly people. The New Testament is for God's heavenly people, right? And so dispensationalism not only disintegrates human history, it also disintegrates the Bible. I mean, quite literally, disintegrates it, right? Chops it in half and says, this is for you and this is for you. But covenant theology, what I'll be teaching, integrates the Bible. It puts it together. It doesn't put it together. It shows you how God put it together. It's not imposed on it from the outside. God's purposes are eternal. His word is unified and consistent. His dealings with mankind are driving intentionally and consistently towards one goal. It gives us back the Old Testament as Christian scripture, not just as an interesting thing for those people back then, that, yeah, we should study and learn about because it helps us understand certain things here, but, you know, that doesn't apply to us. No, no, it applies to us. It gives us back the Old Testament as Christian scripture, and it shows us that we can actually make sense of our lives and our callings as God's people here and now by finding ourselves in that. In that, right in the middle of that, right consistently in step with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, with Moses, with Noah, with David, and with Christ. Okay? So, dispensationalism, dispensationalism is what you grew up with if you're an American Christian. And it's wrong. I'm willing to say that. And a lot of what we're gonna be doing in this class is un unworking a lot of these assumptions that you don't even know you have. Adam?
<sighs> That's a big question because, and it has all kinds of historical. So the very short answer, okay, is that in the 1800s, um, liberalism was coming in to the church through German scholarship and seminaries. Sorry, Germany, but that's, that's the fact. Um, and and that, the, the heart of liberalism, of theological liberalism, is the Bible doesn't really mean what it says. You shouldn't really take it literally, right? That's the heart of theological liberalism. Um, so when that was coming on the scene, conservative, Bible-believing, godly Christians reacted rightly against that Right? And at the same time, by wanting to say, no, 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 we should take the Bible literally. And at the same time, this new system of theology came on the scene called dispensationalism in the mid-1800s, right at the same time, that gave kind of a rationale for taking the Bible literally. And when they say literally, they mean literally. But it's not really. And we, we don't have time to talk about that right now, but we can. Um, and so basically what happened is this new system of interpreting the whole Bible got connected historically, especially in America, with um, preserving the Word of God as the Word of God. So it got linked together with conservative, Bible-believing, godly Christianity. Okay? And if you don't believe this, you're a liberal. That's what I grew up believing. I grew up in a, in a Baptist, a fundamental Baptist background, many of you did as well, where if you're not a dispensationalist, if you don't believe these kinds of things, that, the only other option is you're a liberal, right? So in that kind of context, if you're a Bible-believing, godly Christian, you tend to, to go with this. So that has, it has real strong roots. Um, Never was really the case in the Reformed tradition, but the Reformed tradition went way down for a long time about that same time. So that's why dispensationalism came out on top. We gotta be done. Next week, we'll look at the covenant with creation and uh, start building. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would help us uh, to understand your word clearly and consistently, not just so that we can have interesting thoughts in our heads and arguments and all that kind of stuff, but so that we can know you and know your word, know our purpose, know our calling, uh, know the duties you've laid at our feet and given to us as members of your covenant. Please help us, Lord, to take this very seriously and to... Um, put these things into practice that we'll be learning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.